Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bandroom Podcast, bonus edition. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. A reminder that we're on summer holidays currently, but we still want to leave you with something to listen to, to enjoy, to laugh with, to be inspired by. So for the rest of the summer, we are sharing a few of our favorite bonus episodes with all of you. Mm-hmm. And these are usually only accessible to our Patreon community, but we've decided to give you a little bit of a taste during the summer. So we've picked some of our favorites to, to share with you. But if you wanted after listening to these, to become a patron, that would be great. You help support the podcast and you have access to all of this great bonus content. To hear all of the BRP bonus episodes, as well as other bonus content and connecting with the community, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com bandroompod. And speaking of support, the Bandroom Podcast is proudly supported by the Canadian Band Association. You can learn more about CBA programming, such as the Canadian Winds Journal, the National Youth Band of Canada, the Howard Cable Composition Prize, and all of the amazing work that the provincial chapters are doing by visiting canadianband.org. That is canadianband.org. Without further ado, here is our bonus episode with Alex Shapiro. Well, here we are in the bonus episode that I built up more than I've ever built up in my life. And Alex, this better you gave be us, good. Yes. And Alex, you gave us the most beautiful Patreon commercial ever created. Uh, so we thank you. But um, usually, you know, we ask a guest to share um, some kind of crazy story, be it professional or, or not. And my gosh, c- could you share your, <laughs> your, your very unique experience with our Patreon community? And hopefully for those of you who have just joined Patreon, in order to give a few bucks to Kate and Dylan, because they told you you needed to, especially to hear this story, I am really hoping you're not going to be annoyed, and and I hope that I I deliver something worthwhile for your handful of bucks. The story is this, and this is something I I don't believe I have ever shared publicly, you know, on a on a broadcast of any kind. You know, friends friends in my past know this, um, and some of my current friends know this about my past. But many years ago, in the 1980s, when I first came to Los Angeles in 1983, by about 1984. Uh, I don't ask me quite how this, well, I do know how it happened. I uh, took on an unusual hobby that I think I might be one of the few band composers, if maybe not the only one. (laughs) I'd say so. To say, (laughs) I I was a very serious amateur herpetologist, and I developed an extremely unusually large collection of snakes and a few (laughs) lizards and a few frogs, um, that I had for quite a number of years, really into to, um, the early 90s, for about, for, so let's say about 10 years. Uh, it all started with a reticulated python. And the way that happened was I was dating somebody at the it time. It started. 
It started. It wow. was a great start okay. too. Look up reticulated <laughs> python, or we'll slot, or we'll slot, a slot, slot in a. Um, that was. It's not really a good start starter snake. You usually start with you know a corn snake or a king snake, something smaller. But I went. I went right for the top because hey, that's just the way I am. A reticulated python, for those who don't know, can get to be really large. They, I think the largest one is about 28, 30 feet. I mean, they can get very large. Mine was only seven, nine feet, seven, nine, seven or nine. Only. She was beautiful. Um, but how, and you might be wondering, how in the world did you start collecting snakes and why a retic? Um, they are really beautiful. They're kind of iridescent. Look it up and you'll, you'll see them. Um, I was looking for a washer dryer. And I was looking at the, at the used, you know, the back of the local paper, because back then there was no internet, folks. This was 1984. There was no internet. When you wanted something like a used washer dryer, you opened up this thing called a local newspaper, and you went to the back classified sections. Uh-huh. It's, I know, it's so quaint. <laughs> and you got ink on your fingers and everything. It was a mess. It had a certain smell. So I was looking at washer dryers. And right under washer dryers, I don't know why the placement was such, but exotic pets was right underneath there. And somebody was advertising this reticulated python plus a beautiful kind of an old jewelry, huge department store jewelry display case cage they had made, a custom cage for the snake as well. And my boyfriend at the time said, uh, those are beautiful snakes. And I said, really? He said, have you ever seen a snake? I said, no, I'm from New York City. We, we weren't big into reptiles in, in Manhattan, um, <laughs> at least not the kinds that weren't in fill in your profession here, right? Um, <laughs> he said, you want to go see it? I said, sure, because I'm that kind of gal. I'm game for everything. And I fell in love with this snake. When I met the snake, I just thought it was the most gorgeous thing I ever saw. We went home with the snake. I think I paid 150 bucks, which was a lot of money for, you know, I was a, in my 20s. I was a lot of money. Um, I loved that snake, and I start, I became fascinated. And next thing you know, over the months, I was getting more and more snakes, all kinds of different kinds of snakes. Um, I, I had a lot of Burmese pythons and a lot of boa constrictors. I had corn snakes, king snakes. I had ball pythons. I had, you name it, I, it's a very long list. I Then I got into some lizards. I had, briefly had an iguana. I had a tegu, which is not a nice lizard. They're kind of, they're not so uh, friendly. I had Argentine horn frogs, which are like uh, little comic book frogs with big red spots, bright green with big red polka dots on them. Look them up, they're fantastic. They eat <laughs> mice. They are big. <laughs> and I had a legless lizard that was one of my favorite pets. It's actually a lizard, but it doesn't have legs, but it does have eyelids. Snakes don't have eyelids. At any rate, one thing leads to another, and I have all these Burmese pythons, and I decided to mate them. By this time, I was a proud member of the American Herpetological <laughs> Society, and I was going on a near-weekly basis to their community meetings. Oh and um, as you can imagine, I might have been the only chick composer there. Frankly, there weren't a whole lot of non-chicks, and uh, <laughs> or chicks, oh, I should composer. say, non-guys. And anyway, so I um, I learned a lot about snakes, because this is just like how I learned about about all this gear behind me, all this tech stuff, right? Just show up and, and absorb it and learn it, right? Hang out with the people who were doing it so i was i was also setting up my own um studio at the time this is when i had my project studio that was starting to blossom in and i was you know in the film and tv uh, world trying to get my career started there so at the same time i was learning about you know patch cables and midi connections and and uh you know two inch reel tape and mixing consoles and all that i was also learning about ball pythons and uh boa constrictors and burmese pythons and how to mate them so Long story short, my long and my biggest Burmese python was 19 feet long. Her wow. name was Cleo. She was as big around as I am. 
Uh, that is that is something. She was about tw- 24 oh inches a- around in the waist. Huge snake. And really docile. And I would let her, you know, all these snakes had the run of the house. I mean, they all had cages. But I would let them all out and let, you know, one or two at a time and let them run around. So they were extremely well cared for. Um, uh, but Chloe, I decided, I had an extra room in this townhome I was living in. And I... Put, and usually you want the way to mate snakes, if you guys really want to know, is oh, you put a couple of males in, in the room with the female uh, at the right time of year. And the males get very competitive with each other, and one of them will end up kind of winning out. No harm is done to the other male, but mm-hmm. they, they are definitely, they fight over it. Um, male, then they, the mating itself is not, it's like watching paint dry, I have to tell you. They, they <laughs> kind of sl- slither on. The most exciting thing I can say about python sex is that for, because I know you really want to know, don't you? Mm-hmm. Is that pythons have not one, but, but two hemipenes. They have a one and a spare, which frankly, Dylan, wouldn't you like to have a spare? Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, think about know. it. In case one goes down. Yeah. Who wouldn't want a spare? Yeah. Pull over? Never mind. <laughs> one oh gets tired, gosh. the other one can take Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a woman's dream, at least. I've got to put um, an adult content on this one. Oh my. Yeah, you got to put so, the like rated R rating on this podcast. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> This is what the Patreon, you see, the Patreon people were maybe hoping that there'd be like a nude podcast or something. That's well, what so no, my, I'm fully clothed, but my snakes are naked and they are mating at this point. And it's, it takes all day long. This goes on for like seven hours. Not much happens. There's very little movement, um, but they're oh. apparently having a good time and things went very well because lo and behold, uh, not that long later, um, it was evident that Chloe was I wouldn't say with child, she was with eggs and with many of them. She, I ended up midwifing her. I, the, I forget the gestation. It's been a few years, but it was two months, something like that, three months, whatever it was. Wow. Uh, I'd have to look that part up again. I used to be an expert at this. But uh, I, it, it, she started to give birth, uh, I remember this, at about nine at night, one night. And I had already set up an incubator downstairs. Um, she was on the top floor of, of the two-story townhome. I'd set up an incubator in the um, that I semi-built. I started with one and then made it better um, in my garage. And she laid egg after egg after egg, one at a time, into my hands. I midwifed a 19-foot python <laughs> from 9 in the morning wow. till 6.30 the next morning. I mean, it never stopped. By the time I would carefully, she'd lay one egg into my hand, and, the, and you don't want to jostle the egg, so I would very carefully run it down the stairs and lay it carefully into the incubator and run back upstairs just in time for her to lay the next egg. This happened 90 times. 90 eggs. Oh <laughs> my goodness. And guess what? Because I bet you want to know this. The eggs are the consistency of a peeled hard-boiled egg uh-huh. uh, at first when they come out. And they are about three times the size of a chicken egg. Three times the size. And then they get leathery as, as they are exposed to air. They, um, they get more leathery and, and not totally hard. They don't have a hard shell. It's more like a, a leathery, plasticky kind of shell by the time. Um, and then the little baby python has these sharp little things on its nose that it pokes through the shell from the inside <laughs> when it's ready to hatch. It's so incredibly cute. Anyway, I midwifed this python, 90 eggs. I was exhausted. Do you think she was tired? I was tired by the end of this. And that was an extraordinary experience. So I raised some of these pythons 
I gave, they didn't all hatch. Here's what happens in the wild. They lay a, you didn't know you were going to get a whole python. I love it. In the wild, they they lay into a clutch because, you know, they're in a coil. The (laughs) eggs are popping out. And of course, they pop on top of each other. What that means in the clutch of 90 eggs in the wild, very few of them are actually going to survive because the ones on the bottom don't get enough air and circulation. And the ones on top at the end of that night are going to get plucked off by birds. They're going to be eaten. So it's the ones in the middle that have the most temperature control and the most protection. And so those are the ones in the wild that usually hatch. In the case of of mine, I think 78 of mine actually hatched because they were all laid out really nicely and being spritzed every day and, you know, taken care of in a climate-controlled incubator. It was was great. So I gave away a lot. I was not interested in selling. I think I sold a few, but I, I didn't have it as a business. I did it for a joy. Pythons, by the way, baby pythons are incredibly soft. They're the softest thing you've ever felt um, and they were just darling but I, I also had you know I still had many many other snakes at the same time I was happy to give them away and then finally after about 10 years of this you know I I started to uh, you know give off my uh, collection and my final snake I had until the 1994 earthquake my corn snake which was one of my earliest snakes that I raised from a baby just a beautiful orange corn snake it's in the gopher snake family they're gorgeous they got a checkerboard bottom very sweet snakes um, he unfortunately was my last pet, pet, my last snake pet. Um, and he was, he and his terrarium were flung quite violently. I was oh. in the San Fernando Valley at the time and it, they were destroyed and he was killed in the earthquake in 19, January 17th, 1994. Any Angelino remembers that date, 4.31 in the morning, we had a 6.7. Wow. And I was living in Malibu at the time, but I still kept my studio and my snake in, in Van Nuys, California, which is where I was for 10 years before the 15 I spent in Malibu. And um, so that is just, I have many, many snake stories, but I figured I would oh share that one about how I was really, really into snakes for a very long time. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know what to and say. And then I'll show, I'll, I'll give, I'll send you a picture. Yes. That you can put up of this little action That might figure. be our graph, our episode graphic. I love it. <laughs> because this, um, this picture that you'll be looking at if you're listening to the podcast is, um, is something I, I was telling Kate and Dylan uh, before we started that um, when I was beach walking, you know, sometimes you come up with all kinds of fun little tchotchkes and items on the beach. But the coolest one I ever found that was just the most appropriate was this little trinket, this plastic game piece that shows a long haired brunette girl. Uh, sh- with a shape kind of like mine, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, she is holding what is pretty much a 19-foot python and in both hands. And it's just this great little figure. And I found this years after I had had my snake. I found this probably, you know, in 2000 or so. And it's a prized possession, this little thing. That's so cool. Yeah. I have wow. to ask, yeah. have you ever written music about snakes? Have you ever, yes, like, bridged the gap between these interests of yours? <laughs> I haven't, you know, the, I, I, and what would a snake sound like? This is going to be my first Alex Shapiro commission. Yeah. I'm so excited. When I get my big gig. I, oh. I will write you a snake piece, Dylan. <laughs> Absolutely. Or Kate and I can co-write. I, mean, oh, I, yeah. I don't even know what a snake sounds like. I, oh, but I had a, speaking of which, I had a rattlesnake. It was a great snake. My rattler was, was one of my favorite snakes, it, and it had had a ductectomy. I, I, it, this snake was raised by a well-known herpetologist, long gone, very elderly man, even when I met him in Southern California. He was up in ba- Bakersfield. And I went up there to see his very large collection, and he specialized in rattlers. And what he did was very much, um, you know, the, the, the reason a, a venomous snake's 
head is triangular is because those are the, the cheeks, you know, the sac, those are the venom sacs on either side of the jaw. And so there is a, um, there's a tube that goes from the venom sac to the fang to deliver the venom. So he does, a, this gentleman did a ductectomy, very much like a vasectomy. <laughs> he ties off the duct so, and then milks the snake so that the snake, it doesn't hurt the snake. The snake still has the venom and the sacs but, and still has the fangs. Um, and, but can't transmit any venom. So you would still have a very bad bite if a rattler bit you because those are really big fangs and they come at you very fast. So it would hurt like the dickens. But, um, but I, I brought home a non-venomous a rattler who I had for a very long time. I love that rattlesnake and, and the wonderful sound yeah. of the rattle. When they shake their tails, they're usually when a snake's tail shakes a little bit, they're a little nervous or excited. It could be because they see food coming or because they're nervous. And so that's when you hear the rattle, rattle and their, their tail just shimmies. And uh, so that's the sound of a rattle, rattlesnake. So that's the only thing I can think musically to do. Because yep. other than that, yeah. one of the great things about if you're a musician, living with snakes is awesome because there's no barking. There's yeah. no interruptions. They make no noise whatsoever. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> the neighbors next door might make noise when the snake, snake escapes and comes yeah. into their house. That happened once. You might hear that sound. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, I just want—I don't want it to stop, but we should stop. <laughs> yeah, the time. Another the time episode. Differences. If I'm ever back, I yeah. have more really great Part snake two. stories. Yeah. I have two more. We'll great have to do a stories. sequel. Another yeah. one. Yep. <laughs> snakes on a. Uh, anyway, we'll figure it out. It's snakes uh, on an island. <laughs> yeah. But but thank you so much, Alex, for sharing that. Uh, and yeah, this has really been an immense treat and the the highlight of my month. Yeah, this has been totally. great. <laughs> and for me to see the two of you, this is really great. And I'm so glad you're doing the show together. And it's it's wonderful energy. And um, yay, I, I look forward to listening to all the other episodes that I haven't heard. So this is great. Thank you so, so much, much for inviting me on. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast. Give us a rating and a review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. The Bandroom Podcast is produced by the wonderful Jonathan Wong. And our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room.